Well, hey everyone, what's up? Good morning and welcome to Res City. My name is Joel, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, special welcome to you if you're uh, new with us or you are watching online for the first time or whatever it is. I'm um, just thankful to have you here worshiping with us uh, on this beautiful Sunday morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to get started with our message this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity um, that we have every single Sunday to come together uh, to worship you, to learn more about you, but to not just to learn more about you, um, but to grow as we come into encounter with you through your word, through um, worship, um, and through community with one another, God. We truly meet you uh, on a regular basis on Sunday mornings, God, and I pray that as always we would uh, leave here uh, changed in some way, God, even if just small, um, through that encounter. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're, we're going to be continuing on in our sermon series through the book of Jeremiah that we're doing this, uh, this summer, Build and Plant is what the name of it is. We are talking about how God builds and plants through the word of the prophet Jeremiah. And we're asking, what does it look like for us today to come into an encounter with that word? Uh, even though we're living in a completely different time and place, we're living uh, far, far down the road from Jeremiah's pro- prophetic word here. Um, but the fact that it, it still exists, that it was uh, uh, deposited um, into uh, what we call scripture now, uh, means that it still has some relevance for us today. And so we're asking, what is that relevance. Now today we're going to be talking about a really well-known passage in Jeremiah. So you may have heard of this one or read it before, um, and it's Jeremiah 18, and it's got, it's kind of the potter and the clay uh, metaphor or, or picture, and it has to do with God's sovereignty. So we're going to be talking about that today. God the potter, we're going to talk about like sovereignty and, and free will and what that looks like. But this, I think like a lot of other topics, can become kind of an abstract and sometimes very contentious like theological egghead debate pretty quickly, right? You get into like debating Calvinism and Arminianism or free will and determinism and like I'll just be honest, like especially if you knew me back in college, like I was the chief egghead. Like I love those kinds of conversations. I was driving the bus a lot of times. So I've been in, in plenty of these and it's honestly like a habit I'm, I'm trying to kick a little bit. Um, so let me be clear, I, I, I absolutely, this sermon is not going to be a sort of philosopher's club where we're debating the merits of different positions or asking like free will versus determinism, which one is right, because that's actually not what the passage is about, okay? And when we actually like step into the, the word of God, we find that a lot of the things that we are, you know, maybe bringing into it is not what the passage is about. And so what I want to do today is I want us to actually read the passage and let it kind of challenge us, okay? Because really, like, this matters, like, this sort of understanding of what Scripture is matters for us when we read our Bibles, right? I think a lot of times we might approach it like it's a book filled with information about God for us to kind of pontificate or, or think about and maybe come up with our own ideas about what that maybe means, right? And we kind of will put words on things that aren't necessarily in Scripture and aren't necessarily bad and help us understand things, but that can sometimes kind of pull us away from the intent of the actual passage that we're reading. And we maybe squeeze it into our own categories or debates or projects, kind of treating the Bible like it's a theological textbook or some kind of like encyclopedia where we can just look up the answers or some information on some, something that we want to know for our own purposes, okay? And you can think, think, kind of think of it like this, okay? At a zoo, you go to the zoo and you observe animals sitting on the other side of a glass wall, right? And, you know, you know they're 
like, have you ever noticed, you know, they have like a little info stand a lot of times in front of it, and it will kind of tell you information about the animal that's sitting in there, right? Like, here's a cheetah. It's just sitting there, and, you know, it's not doing anything, but would you believe it or not, it can run 70 miles an hour, um, right? And you're like, wow, that's as fast as my car goes. Like, that's pretty fast. And you're trying to, like, you know, picture that or think about what that looks like, right? When that's, you know, when, when that's what you're doing, the animal is in our territory, right? The animal is there for us to kind of study it, to kind of observe it, to kind of see it. And, you know, you, you see how tame animals are. I, I love zoos, so I'm not necessarily ripping on them here, but, like, you notice the animals are kind of bored, right? This is, it's very clear, like, they're hanging out in your territory, right? They're kind of, they're not able to kind of go out and be themselves in a lot of ways because they're just there for us to observe and watch, Okay. That's how we kind of want them in a zoo, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to go to a zoo where they were all running around and, you know, always doing the things that animals might do outside of a zoo, right? That's kind of not the point. But I think a lot of times when we, go, when we come to the Bible, we're treating it like a zoo for God in a lot of ways, where we kind of domesticate him like we do those animals in the zoo. We kind of invite him into our territory, make him do or be whatever we want him to be, right? We kind of use the Bible to study for our own ends, Right? We don't have a real encounter with God, just like we don't have a real encounter with that cheetah, right? We're just kind of looking at it. Scripture is not a zoo, though, all right? When we properly understand and approach Scripture how it is, as God's Word given to us, we, re- we realize it's not a zoo where we're trying to cram, you know, certain things about that animal or God to fit our own ends in some way. Scripture is actually a safari, all right, a safari, when you go to a safari, you're not in your own territory anymore. You're in the animal's territory, all right? And there's not, maybe not an information slide that says, hey, here's a cheetah, and it runs 70 mile an hour, but you might actually see a cheetah running 70 mile an hour, and that's a lot different than reading about it. Um, you're not knowing the actual mile per hour it's running, maybe, but you do know something deeper than that. Like, this cheetah is fast, and it could definitely run me down and eat me if it wanted to, right? There's a different type of knowing than you would have in a zoo, right? Um, the cheetah is just it's being itself, and we're forced to react to the cheetah. We're forced to respond to the cheetah. It's forcing a response from us as we enter its territory. When we open Scripture and we treat it truly as God's word, we have to understand we're in God's territory then. Right? And he is, he's on the loose. We have to adjust to him. We have to respond to him when we open it up. We can't do it the other way around, but we're really good at treating Scripture like it's a zoo instead of a safari. Right? We're not supposed to approach Scripture uh, to put God on his heels for our sake. We're supposed to approach it ready to be put on our own heels. Okay, And that's what this text, I think, is all about today. It's about uprooting and tearing down, and it's about building and planting. And so even though we're going to come to this, it's going to spark some sort of question about some of these big abstract debates. I don't want us to be thinking in those terms about it necessarily. I want it to be an encounter with God where we're responding to him in what the passage says. Okay, so with all that out of the way, let's get into this text, um, which you know, has often been used to put God under a magnifying glass. And let's instead put ourselves under the magnifying glass and let God do some looking into us. Instead of reading the scripture, let's let it read us today. How about, okay? So let's get into it. Jeremiah 18, uh, we're going to start in verse 1 here. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 
Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. I actually think this is like a, a kind of a funny picture. It's like, you know, hey, Jeremiah, we're going to go on a field trip today. Um, you're going to get up, and you're going to go, and you're going to hang out and watch this potter doing his thing, right? So he kind of has an object lesson for Jeremiah that he's going to use to kind of teach Jeremiah something that he'll turn into a message that he'll proclaim to Judah. Now, they bring him to like kind of the, you know, just to understand what pottery, you know, what, what pot, potters and, and kind of working with clay looked like in this time. This is like an older, noisier part of, of Jerusalem. It had to be close to the city's water supply because you need uh, water in order to work with clay. Um, and we know that pottery was actually a really prevalent and important part of the ancient world. Um, if, you know, just archaeology digs of sites in the ancient world are littered with pieces of pottery. So we can kind of get a sense for how important, you know, it was for there to be potters working in any city. Now, they would work with a wheel, and that was kind of made up of a, just two large stones. And so the potter would turn the bottom one with his feet, and with it, the top one would move. And he would shape the pot in his hands, kind of like the art classes that you may or may not have taken in high school, right? It worked pr- kind of similar to that, except uh, it was, you know, he was moving it with his feet, okay? So think of it a little bit like that. That's what's going on here. There's a wheel, it's spinning, there's a pot in front of the potter, and he's using his hands to sort of mold it to try to put it into a certain shape that he has a design for in his head. That's what's going on here. So Jeremiah says, after he gets there, that the pot that he, the potter, was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Okay, so notice what happens here. And this is actually key to understanding everything that's going to come from all this. Okay, really kind of insert yourself into the image. Understand the image that's going on here. The clay doesn't always get shaped the way the potter wants to shape it, right? The potter has a goal as he's working that um, pot in front of him, and he's trying to shape it in a certain way, but the, the clay doesn't always respond in the way the potter wants to. In a sense, it's moving, it's alive in a sense, and it kind of can twist and bulge on its own, becoming marred or going to ruin in the process, okay? That's just the nature of clay on a potter's wheel, Okay? All that said, however, it's important to note something else here. This, this isn't an indication that the potter did something wrong. There's no indication that the potter can't handle the clay either. Okay? It doesn't seem like the, the potter is coming to life and it's ruining his plans. He has no ability to sort of make a pot that day now because of what the, what the clay is doing. And he's not just letting the clay turning into whatever it wants to at this point just because it's not kind of doing what he wants it to. If that were true, the potter would be out of control. But that's not the case here. That's not what's going on. He can take the clay off the stone. He can roll it back into a ball and put it back and start over again with it. Or maybe he decides he wants to, to, he wants to kind of use the way that the pot has shifted in some way to kind of achieve his own ends in, in some way, right? He maybe he says, oh, well, this kind of happened, but let's kind of tweak it this way and we'll get it back into the shape I was trying to make it again, right? Just by a different path here. Here's what's going on, all right? There's an interplay here where what the clay does matters, but also what the pot, that the potter remains in control of the process at every point. Okay? Uh, the ends are still accomplished that the potter has, and his design still comes to fruition, even if what he maybe had you know, conditionally expressed would happen isn't the exact course it was taken. Right? Even if the clay doesn't necessarily play along the whole time that he's doing it. Now, as I'm, I'm sure you're guessing, or maybe you read this before, we'll find out in a second, Israel is clay and God is the potter, 
That's what's going on here. Their interplay is kind of like the one that we see, that Jeremiah is seeing with this potter and the clay. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of mysterious, right? Is it total free will? Is there some determinism going on here? The, in, the interesting thing here is that Scripture does not care about getting into that debate here. It just kind of assumes that, uh, you know, God is in control, but our decisions matter. What Israel chooses to do matters. There are consequences for it, but that never means at any point that God is out of control. What does that look like? We don't really know, and Scripture is not that interested in explaining the process of how that works. It just kind of assumes both of those realities at the same time. If, you, if, we, if we struggle to wrap our, our brain around that sometimes, that's actually totally fine. We don't need to. Scripture is not asking us to understand some really dense, you know, sort of philosophical understanding of, a, of this. It's just kind of asking us to accept this or assume it just like the Scripture is. Instead, Scripture wants us to wrap our brain around what God is going to say next. Okay? This is the force of the passage, what God says next here. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like the clay in the hand of a potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended for it, uh, to do for it. Okay? Remember, this is not a theology textbook. It's not an encyclopedia. It's prophetic speech. It's meant to challenge, to move Israel in some way, to uproot and tear down so God can build and plant. Okay? So because of this, God is giving a picture to challenge Judah, not to necessarily explain some abstract point, but to get a response out of them. Okay? And again, notice the language here. Uprooting and tearing down, building and planting. This is kind of the theme of the book, right? We named our sermon series after it because it, it, this language shows up constantly in the book of Jeremiah. God is, is planning to uproot and tear down here, he's saying. Um, and he can shift depending on what happens with the clay on the wheel. Okay? It, it, it's the same for if he intends to, to plant in some way. He can shift according to what happens on the wheel. His sovereignty is not in question here. Okay? But what this does is it puts the ball in Judah's court by assuming their responsibility and how they will respond to God's action. So he's saying to them, throughout this whole time, you've been like this clay. You've been getting out of sorts. You've been bulging. You've been twisting. And just you seem generally uninterested in becoming the pot that I've been trying to shape you into. And by the way, you're heading to ruin because of it. It's not just you're, you're just kind of like trying to become something else. Like you're going to ruin when this happens, okay? Notice that whenever the clay resists the will of the potter, it's not becoming something like better than the potter intended. He says, no, no, it's, it's going to ruin when that takes place. But I'm flexible. Work with me here, okay? If you repent, if you turn back, I will still form you into this beautiful jar that I've been working on this whole time. Just because I'm sovereign doesn't mean the future is decided. Actually, because I'm sovereign, it means the future isn't, right? It means that there are actually possibilities available to you that might not have been if I wasn't sovereign or in control. The future remains open for you. You are still on the potter's wheel, and that means there's still time to turn back before I pull you off this wheel, I ball you back up, and I start over, which is going to be painful. It's not going to be fun. 
So God says to Jeremiah, Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, It's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. So unfortunately, as we've kind of seen throughout the book, God is not very optimistic about what Judah is going to do as he gives this message to them. But at the moment, the point is, the future is not sealed, and God's prophetic word can still be responded to by them. So let's unpack this. Let's kind of ask like, what this means for us today. Let's not just read the scripture, like I said earlier. Let's let it read us, in a sense. Okay, and here's, I think, one of the important things for us to get out of this. Our decisions do have consequences, okay? When we try to resist the potter's sovereignty, the path ends up leading to ruin. That's what this passage is telling us. And God won't necessarily stop us from meeting that ruin if we seem totally uh, determined to meet there, to get that. That's what he says to them in, in verse 12, right? We will, he's like, oh, it's no use. They're going to say, we will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our hearts. Okay, now, okay, this is true for us. We can respond. We can change. We can turn back. But I think a lot of times our problem is we like to have our cake and eat it too, okay? We might not like the idea of a potter, right, we, who has the ability and the right to mold the clay how he likes to, okay, who works things according to his will because we have no guarantees that it will line up with what we expect or want. I think that's sometimes why we might be uncomfortable with the idea of a sovereign God because we feel like it robs us of our responsibility or something. Okay? We desperately want to be responsible for ourselves. I think that's like a normal, very American thing, to want to be responsible and free to kind of decide what kind of pot we want to be. Okay? We live in, the, in a world that is like obsessed with and I think highly addicted to freedom, quote-unquote. We love it. Everyone talks about it all the time. We are highly resistant to anyone telling us what we should do with our freedom. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean we necessarily have a goal with what we want to do with our freedom. We don't always necessarily want to use our freedom for something. We just want to know that our options are open, that we're not committed to anything. We like the idea of having our option open, options open. And Judah wanted that same freedom, too, I think. But here's the issue, okay? We desperately want that on the one hand, but at the same time, we don't like the idea of God actually giving us what we've tried to take for ourselves when it turns out to not be what we expected. Okay, a lot of times we want to kind of play both sides of this. We want to have our freedom, but we don't like it when God sort of makes our choices have consequences. We don't want to hear that there might be consequences for us living with this freedom, okay? Think about it like this, okay? Think about it like this. Imagine a kid, he turns 18, and he knows that their, you know, his wealthy parents have invested a lot of money uh, in, in their name for them to use for college and someday to help them buy a house and start a family, right? Their parents have set aside this money, they've invested it really well, and it's all going to go to this kid, right, at some point, but this kid thinks his parents are dummies. He's like, okay, boomers, but I've got some better ideas for what I could do with this money. And so he, he goes to his parents and he says, hey, I want all that money you've been saving for me. I want to use it now, okay? And so his parents, they acknowledge, like, you're 18. You can do what you want with this. Even though we ultimately have full control over this, this bank account, you know, legally, we're going to allow you to spend it how you want to. You have the freedom to do that. You're 18. So this kid takes the money. He moves into some super posh downtown apartment, and he invests 
the rest of the money in a startup tech company that takes your mail from your mailbox, scans it, and then emails it to you later on. This is actually, I, I didn't make that up. That's actually a real startup company that I found out that failed. Okay, so, okay, predictably, this startup company doesn't take off and he's wasted all this money. It's completely gone. He doesn't have it anymore. And so now he's, he's got no money left. He's actually kicked out of his apartment. And he starts to say to himself, man, my parents are literally the worst. Like, why didn't they do something about this? Why didn't they step in and intervene in some way? Why didn't they, like, stop me from getting all this money? Like, they could have done it. They had the resources to do it. They could have came and saved me. I can't believe how awful my parents are, right? We would say that kid has got it really messed up, right? We would say, like, well, dude, this is what you wanted. You can't blame your parents for, uh, you know, letting you go and run with your, you know, terrible ideas and having it have consequences on you. But I think we can do that sometimes with God. God being sovereign doesn't mean you don't have the responsibility you desire, okay? But it does mean that you have to reckon with what we bring on ourselves when you use that responsibility to resist the potter. So we need wisdom in how we decide to do that. So the question for us here as we approach this passage is this. How are we going to use the responsibility that we do have? This is what confronts us when we realize that this passage is a safari that we're stepping into, right? It's demanding us some response for us, okay? That's what's going on here when we step into this passage and we realize there are some cheetahs on the loose here. Who will we choose to be? Are we going to choose to embrace the potter's design? Are we going to trust what he's shaping? Now, I imagine, like, you're all sitting here thinking, yeah, of course, this is what I want. This is why I'm in church, right? This is why I come to church, is I, I want this, okay? And I believe that that's genuine. I believe we do truly want that. But here's the, the tricky thing, and we actually find this as we read throughout the book of Jeremiah so often, um, the, the, a lot of the responsibility that we exercise isn't always conscious, okay? So you can go back to, like, last week's sermon. We talked about how fickle our hearts can be, how hard to understand our hearts can be, and that can be a real challenge for us as we try to follow God, all right? Um, God says this here, though. Um, can you uh, get the slide to move forward here? There we go, thanks. Um, okay, Jeremiah eighteen fifteen. Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways on roads not built up. So it's kind of playing on a theme we find in Jeremiah of wandering hearts, of of, of you know, people that haven't maybe outright rejected God, they had just drifted off of that onto some other path, onto some byway that God had not built. They just kind of find themselves wandering, kind of exploring other paths that kind of go off of the main path that God is walking them along and finding, you know, not realizing that there's cliffs ahead. Okay, they're just kind of drifting. They're just kind of exploring. They're, they're keeping their options open. They hadn't converted, or sorry, deconverted, or like become atheists, right? However we might think of like what it looks like to reject God. That's not what's going on here. It's this. Judah does not appear to fully trust God with their destiny. They don't fully trust where God is leading them, what he's shaping and molding them into. And so they just had kind of started hedging their bets with other gods and other nations, you know, kind of like leaving the path to go walk down another path and just check and see, does this, does this path go somewhere a little more interesting? You know, this seems like a fun place to go. Let's go check this out. 
They're, they're, just, they're, they're, they're drifting. They're wandering away from God. They have wandering hearts. And God kind of talks about this a lot throughout Jeremiah as what the real problem is for them. So when you work with clay, which I'm not at all an expert on, but I have done a, a little bit, when the, clay, you know, when the clay needs to be balled up and started over again, it's not because like some part of it like exploded, right? Or just decided to detach itself and leave, right? It's because there's a small kind of deformity that kind of grows bigger and bigger as the wheel keeps turning, right? Something small starts to turn into something bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets really out of control and you can't fix it at a certain point if you don't do something about it early on, okay? It's like, a, it's, like it's drifting, slowly and slowly, but more and more as the wheel turns, uh, you know, further and further and goes along until it can't be fixed anymore on the wheel. I think this is more often what we do with our responsibility. It's that we drift, okay? D.A. Carson says we don't drift towards holiness, okay? When we start to drift, it's not drifting more and more into what God has called us to be. Okay, that has to be intentional. That has to be a work of the potter with us on the wheel. So when we start to drift, it's, it's going to be away from holiness. It's going to be away from what God is calling us to be, towards being marred. And even if it's baby steps, which it often is a lot of times, um, even if it barely takes us off the path, many of those baby steps makes us to realize, you know, slowly that we've actually deviated pretty far from the path. I think, honestly, that's much, the much more common path that is taken, like a piece of clay's deformity slowly growing, a slow drift away from holiness, often unaware, and so we might still think, yeah, we're pretty close. I'm, pretty, I'm not that far back from the trail. I know I've kind of wandered here a little bit, right? It, it, and it's been kind of fun to explore, but I'm still pretty close to the trail. Like, it'll be really easy for me to get back onto it. I'm basically still on the trail. I think this trail that I'm on is basically going the same direction as the other trail that I was on before. So I, I'm probably good. Whereas you're not realizing you're actually pretty far off the trail at this point. I think that's what happens more often. That's what our uh, responsibility often looks like. Now, on the surface, Judah's destiny appears pretty bleak here. And God is at a point where he doesn't expect them to turn. He's like, you're pretty far down the path. Like, you're not going to get back on the path again here. Now, I don't know how many of you knew this, but my dad's actually an art teacher. So I spent a lot of time in his art room growing up um, and just kind of hanging out and doing stuff. And um, there's a room in his room, kind of off to the side, that is... It's got a few things in it. Like it's where you store like the, the boxes of clay before you, you pull it out. And it's got a big machine that you kind of use to spit some clay out that you can throw it on, on the wheel. But there's also a big bin in there which is just filled with kind of, you know, balls of clay or scraps of clay. It's, it's kind of where like, I mean, he's a high school art teacher. So like just think about the amount of times teenagers, you know, get bored of their project or, you know, mess it up and they just start over. They throw it in this big pit of clay, and so, you know, you can kind of, like, uh, reuse a lot of it later on, but it's this, it's this big thing. You throw, like, unwanted um, projects, essentially, okay? And you look in there, and you just see all the stuff that people have tried to do that has kind of been messed up or failed upon. We might think that God has one of these bins, right? A place that he throws the pots that he's just given up on, that are just, like, too far gone. You know, we can't, can't do anything with this pot anymore, Okay? I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I was just thinking about this during the week. Like, people say this about themselves sometimes. I don't know if you've noticed. People who like, feel like, 
you know, like they, they went to church for a while, but they have kind of recognized, like, yeah, I have kind of drifted. Um, and they just kind of feel like, I'm, I'm too far gone, okay? And, and, you know, usually they do it in a self-deprecating kind of humorous way, okay? But deep down, you, you can tell, like, they actually understand, like, they're, they're kind of far. And they feel like, I, I'm probably in the leftover, messed up clay bin forever. Like, there's, I'm not getting out of this thing, right? They're, they're, and, and I think it's kind of a way for them to kind of just give up. That's something we might believe about God here. But it's not what God says about himself, okay? It's not how we should understand a potter who is sovereign. When we enter this, you know, the safari of scripture, this picture of God that we have, a God who throws, you know, projects that are just too far gone, that he doesn't want to deal with anymore, into some garbage bin, that's not the God we meet, okay? We actually instead meet a God whose sovereignty is so great that he can uh, grab that clay and, and, and start over again or, or craft the clay to go away that he wants to. God is, is not in the business of throwing away clay. That is not the kind of potter that he is, okay? And so the idea that God is the sovereign potter is not something to fear or be angry about or to feel like limits us in some way. It's actually good news. It's actually the kind of news that should uh, shape us and make us uh, excited to feel like we can trust who God is, okay? Because God, like any good potter, he wants to take that marred clay and work it, to take it on new paths of grace, to still with the goal of forming it into the pot that he had set out to make. Romans 8, 28, very famous passage. Paul says, and we know that all, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose, when we've been called to God's purpose, he is forming all things for good. That doesn't always mean what we think is good, but it means what God thinks is good. And ultimately, what God thinks is good is good for us. That's how God uses his sovereignty. That's what it looks like for us to have a potter like this. Now, earlier I used an analogy of like, like a, someone kind of rejecting their parents, right? Saying, I'm, you know, I want to use my own uh, sovereignty. I, I want to use my own responsibility in a way that I would like. And then going off and using it and having it totally fail and blow up in their face. And then, you know, kind of being stuck in the consequences of that, right? Well, you know, some of you, you know, for, for some of you, you probably kind of, your ears are like, oh, this sounds like a parable that Jesus uses, right? Like this kind of sounds like something Jesus said. And it's because it's true. Jesus uses a parable. It basically says the same thing. Now think about who he's talking to when he gives that parable, okay? Um, you, you might think, right, that the father in that scenario or the, the, the parents would say to that son, I'm sorry, you, you used up all this money. Like you're done, like you're very, very hurtful, a very stupid thing. Like, we kind of, we're taking the family name back, actually, right? You might think that he might have, they might have thrown him into the leftover clay bin, okay? But the father doesn't do that in the parable. The father actually runs to the son as soon as he sees the son has kind of turned back from it. He's realized how far gone he is gone. And as he comes back to the father, the father runs out to greet him, to meet him. Right? to restore him, to throw a big uh, banquet, a big feast in celebration of his returning back and his restoration now back to being a full son of his. When Jesus speaks this parable, think about who he's talking to. He's talking to people who are, have lived in the consequences of what has happened in Jeremiah 18. 
right? The stuff that God was saying through Jeremiah was going to take place had taken place. They had faced the consequences of, of their choices, of their, and their responsibility was coming back now to bite them in the butt. But think about what he's saying here. If you apply the parable to these people, to the nation of Israel, the people of, of Jerusalem who are hearing it, he's saying to them, oh, God is sovereign. God is a good potter, and he's not done with this pot yet. He's inviting them to come back to him now. He's saying in his sovereignty, like, I still can bless you. I can still make you a part of this family. I can still uh, have you, cause you to flourish now that you've come back to me. That's what it means for me to be sovereign here. And so it reveals to us the nature of this sovereign God, one who runs to give the clay a reset to redeem it, to restore it, to bring it to these original purposes of making it this pot that he had always designed it to be. Who uses his sovereignty and his control to undo the mistakes of drifting and outright consequence that we often use our responsibility to lead us towards. So if we think of a God who is sovereign over history in the world as, as, as bad news because it takes away our responsibility maybe, I would say to you, we need to see it opposite here. A God who is sovereign can undo the effects of our responsibility. He can redeem and restore them and put together things that are broken and invite us back in and use his sovereignty to restore us, to make us new, and to deliver us into being these beautiful pots that God has designed us to be. We're going to move into a, a time of, of prayer and communion here. And so um, would love for you to kind of reflect on that, to think about, you know, maybe are there paths that I have drifted upon, right? Are there, there places where I'm a little bit off the path here? And ask yourself, you know, you know, where do I need to maybe turn back, knowing that the sovereign God is waiting to restore you, to bring you back to him. Um, as we do that, we're going to be taking uh, communion. And, and just a reminder, uh, going back to last week, we're, we've started doing communion uh, again where we all kind of come up to the front here. We take from the same uh, loaf of bread, invite you to do that again. We think there's a lot of um, kind of symbolism in that uh, that I talked about a little bit last week. But I also want to throw this out there. If that makes you uncomfortable, that is totally fine. We still have some of the old cups that we have been using for the last couple of years here over COVID for you to grab as well. So do whatever you're comfortable with. Um, but again, as you're taking that communion, think about uh, Jesus, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us so that we could come back, so that we may be returned to this, the potter God and restored and made new again um, as the beautiful pots that God is, is, is forming us into. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are sovereign. You are in control. You are a potter um, working the clay uh, into what he wants it to be. And even when we drift, even when we um, get marred in some way, God, as we uh, drift off of what you are trying to make us into, we know that um, you are waiting for us to return. That's what it means for you to be sovereign, is that you can undo and recreate our mistakes, our sins, and you can make them new. They are not a threat to the pots that you are making us into, God. Um, they are just part of the process sometimes. A painful part of the process, but part of the process nonetheless. I pray that you would, uh, you would respond to us in grace and love, Lord, as we uh, reflect on that and we ask ourselves where it is we, maybe we have been drifting and, and how we can return to you, God. Give us wisdom through your spirit so we may do that today in any places where we may need to. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.